Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, A Little Girl Heals a Great Man. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February the 12th, 2012. Last month I read the new biography of Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. As head of the world's most valuable company, Jobs was the ultimate insider. He wielded power, enjoyed fame, and had an estimate, estimated net worth of $8.3 billion. Just before reading the Jobs book, though, I also read Manning Marable's critically acclaimed biography, Malcolm X. Malcolm X was the consummate outsider so outside society's mainstream that he scorned integrationists like Martin Luther King Jr. as Uncle Tom's. After he was murdered in 1965, the only thing his wife Betty inherited was debt. In his book, The Faith of the Outsider, Frank Spina explores this insider-outsider theme in the Bible. He reminds us that it's impossible to ignore the scandal of particularity throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, Israel alone is God's elect people. We read in Amos 3, 2, you, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And Israel is not only God's special insider community, it's the only insider community. All other nations are distinctly outsiders. <clears throat> in Paul's language in Ephesians 2.12, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise. If you excise this insider-outsider theme from Scripture, you would end up with a very slender Bible indeed. But that's only part of the story, for it's easy to find many plot reversals. When God elected one particular community, Israel, his intentions were universal in scope. We read in Genesis 12:3 that in Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And those same early Christians who proclaimed Jesus as the only way to the Father similarly imagined heaven populated with a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Revelation 7-9. The Bible often elevates the outsider. This inclusion of outsiders, Spina argues, is neither incidental nor haphazard in the biblical witness. These outsider stories often cast the insider in a negative light and the outsider as superior in virtue and faith. Spina's book considers seven of these stories where the outsider is brought in and the insider is cast out. Esau, Tamar, Rahab, Jonah, Ruth, the woman at the well in Jonah 4 who had married five times, and then the lectionary passage from 2 Kings 5 for this week about Naaman. Naaman epitomizes the outsider for several reasons. He was from pagan Syria, a military officer of a major enemy of Israel. The narrator praises Naaman in glowing terms, 
We read, He was a valiant soldier, a great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded. Then he adds a shocking detail. Through Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. God gave victory to Israel's enemy through a pagan officer? Yes. Finally, Naaman had a skin disease. This disease, as Spina notes, might have caused Naaman some medical problems, but his real complications were social, religious, and moral. For people with such impurities were stigmatized as ritually unclean, and therefore excluded from God's community. Consider for a moment a contemporary analogy. Saddam Hussein was an Iraqi military general, praised by all as a valiant warrior and a great man. In fact, the Christian God had granted victory to Iraq through Saddam. This is not where the story of Naaman ends, but it's definitely where it begins. In search of healing, this great man, 2 Kings 5.1, embarked on a state visit with opulent gifts to visit the king of Israel, a letter of commendation in hand. But instead of the king, he met a nameless little girl from Israel who had been captured by Syria's army and made a slave. She advised him to seek healing from the Hebrew prophet Elisha. The irony is unmistakable, and Naaman's response is predictable. When this nameless nobody instructed the renowned military officer not to seek help from the corridors of political power, but from a religious prophet who told himself to wash seven times in the Jordan River, he was incensed. But Naaman obeyed. He was healed, and then the plot thickens when he also converted. Now I know that there's no God in all the world except in Israel. Finally, he made a curious request to take dirt back from Israel to Syria. For I will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Perhaps Naaman wanted to establish a portable sacred space back home. Although back in Syria, he continued to assist his master to worship in the temple of the deity Rimon, Naaman asked for advance forgiveness for that compromise and declared his fidelity to Israel's God. Naaman the outsider joined the insider community. A nameless little girl advised a great man, and the prophetic power of Elijah subverted social and political power. The story ends with yet one more reversal, when greed overtook Elisha's servant, Gehazi. He connived to obtain the gifts that Naaman had offered to Elijah, but which Elijah had refused. Gehazi, the insider of Israel's prophet Elisha, was then struck with the skin disease that originally afflicted the outsider pagan military commander Naaman. Spina writes in his book, The story that began with this disease ends with it, with the difference that its victims have been reversed. The Aramean outsider has become clean, and the Israelite insider has become unclean.
Presumption is the besetting sin and the chronic temptation of the insider. To our peril we ignore, shun, and vilify the outsider as strange, dangerous, and unclean. We smugly imagine that we possess the truth, as few others do, rather than ask God for his truth to transform us. Rather than considering solidarity with the lost, the lonely, and the outsider a privilege that enriches our lives, we construe the biblical narrative in a narcissistic manner to serve our own petty ends. The insider-outsider dynamic operates at many levels. Malcolm X would not let us off easy about racism. Steve Jobs was famous for his cruelty. Ethnicity, an important job, a prestigious school affiliation, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, gender, age, body image, and politics. All these are identities we alternately exclude or embrace, personas that we construct to comfort ourselves that we are insiders and to scapegoat others as outsiders. Self-delusion is never far away. Luke 18, 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like all other people. In his book, What Jesus Meant, Gary Wills writes, No outsiders were cast out far enough in Jesus' world to make him shun them. Not Roman collaborators, not lepers, not prostitutes, not the crazed, not the possessed. Are there people now who could possibly be outside his encompassing love? Instead of defining other people outside the love of God, we're better off imitating the Apostle Paul, an apostolic insider, who in the epistle this week contemplates the real and harrowing possibility of his own banishment to outsider perdition. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. And for books this week, I review the biography Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention by Manning Marable. New York Viking, 2011, 594 pages. Manning Marable has written what will stand as the definitive work on Malcolm Little for decades to come. He emphasizes Malcolm's many reinventions of his carefully crafted persona in order to rescue the historical man from iconic legend as black nationalism's secular saint, and from what he calls the numerous inconsistencies, errors, and fictive characters in Malcolm X's famous autobiography that was written with Alex Haley and has sold over six million copies. The violent death of Malcolm X's father and his mother's 24 years in an insane asylum plunged the family into an abyss of poverty. Malcolm was farmed out to neighbors, spent time in a juvenile home, moved to Boston with his half-sister, then dropped out of school in the ninth grade. Life as a pimp, drug peddler, and petty criminal 
landed him in jail at the age of 20. But later he would write, I don't think anybody got more out of going to prison than I did. In six years of incarceration, Malcolm developed his extraordinary powers of dedication and self-determination through a program of self-education and conversion to the nation of Islam. The post-prison Malcolm distinguished himself as a zealous evangelist and national leader in the nation of Islam, a militant sect that had only a tenuous resemblance to Orthodox Islam. The Nation of Islam was overtly racist and sexist, apolitical and purely religious, preaching absolute separatism from the white devils. They discouraged members from registering to vote, forbid members from attending the 1963 March on Washington when King gave his dream speech, meted out punitive violence for even minor infractions, and demanded unconditional obedience to the dictatorial leader, Elijah Muhammad, who claimed to be divine, even as he enriched himself and fathered many children by numerous women. When Malcolm X broke, broke with the Nation of Islam, he became a celebrity free agent on the world stage, but also a marked man. He had been under FBI surveillance since 1950, Trips to the Middle East and Africa opened his eyes to authentic Islam and his own cultural roots in Africa. World leaders welcomed him. Standing room only crowds at universities thronged him. His evolving understanding of the relationship between race, religion, and politics led to further reinventions. Whereas the earlier Malcolm X scorned integrationists like Martin Luther King as Uncle Tom's, his later reinventions approximated some version of what Manning Marable calls multicultural universalism. At the time of his assassination by the Nation of Islam in 1965, observes Marable, Malcolm was widely reviled and dismissed as an irresponsible demagogue. Many people admired Martin Luther King, who worked patiently and accomplished much within the system toward a colorblind society. But it was Malcolm X who voiced the rage of many others who thought the system was broken beyond repair, and who encouraged African Americans to celebrate rather than to erase color consciousness. History has come full circle. In 1999, the U.S. Post Office issued a stamp commemorating Malcolm X as one of our country's most important civil rights leaders. The title of the book, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. The author is Manning Marable. For film this week, I actually review a television show called Portlandia from 2011. Portlandia is a clever television satire about all things hip in Portland. The coffee culture, feminist bookstores, artisan light bulbs, the allergy pride parade, bicycle rights activists, free-range chicken, and on it goes. In one episode, for example, the Portland mayor sits on an exercise ball instead of an office chair in order to work his core.
The show features writer, producers, stars Carrie Brownstein, who was in the in independent girls rock band Slater Kinney for 12 years, and Fred Armisen, who starred at Saturday Night Live for 10 years. I watched the show after reading a feature article about Portlandia in The New Yorker. In that article, Brownstein recalls standing in line at Whole Foods when a guy asked why they didn't carry locally made fresh pasta, to which the cashier responded, sure we do, it's right there. But the guy complained, no, that's from Seattle. Brownstein concludes, really? You don't have a bigger battle? Indeed. Six episodes from season one are available on Netflix streaming. Season two of Portlandia began in early 2012. The episodes on Netflix are about 20 minutes each. Television satire, Portlandia. And for poetry this week, and for Black History Month, we've posted a poem by Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar. The title of his poem is Martin Luther King, Jr. Some of us are old enough to remember the balcony in Memphis, the sanitation workers' strike, the shot that broke flesh, the loss of Martin, and then the mule-drawn wagon in the funeral, and the riots, the violence, the fear, and the failure. All of us know the crowd in D.C., and I have a dream, the Birmingham jail, the broad stream of violence and his steadfast nonviolence, in Albany and in Skokie and in Selma. All of us know his awesome, daring speech, his bravery, his hope, and his generative word. And we know the relentlessness of our government in pursuit of him and the endless surveillance and harassment of this drum major for justice. At this distance, we have little access to how it was then concerning ambiguity in fear and reluctance and violence and injustice. We do not doubt that you have persisted, even beyond Martin's passion, even beyond Martin's brilliance, even beyond Martin's fidelity and his loss. We do not doubt that through him and beyond him, you, holy God of the prophets, are still pledged to justice and peace and liberty for all. We remember Martin in gratitude and chagrin, and we pledge amid our stressed ambiguities to dream as he did, to walk the walk, and to talk the talk of your coming kingdom. We pledge, so sure that your truth will not stop its march, until your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The title of the poem is Martin Luther King. The author is the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February the 12th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.